You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. All right, good morning, brothers and sisters. Glad you're here. We are going to continue our study in 1 Thessalonians. And if you've been following along, but yeah, if you've been following along, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica and uh, talking about uh, his experiences with them, his love for them, uh, his encouragement to them, and we're going to continue that in our study today. Uh, So you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, or if you're using an app on your tablet or your phone, I encourage you to open that up now and uh, follow along as we read through this passage. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through sections. So the first five verses, uh, we'll talk about that, and then we'll go through uh, verses 6 through 10. And we'll talk about those, that passage, and then we'll wrap up with the final three verses. Before we get into that, though, I want to open with prayer. And just, again, just to ask God to bless our fellowship together. And that this salvation that we have is real. And that the work that God is doing in our hearts is the real thing. And so uh, let's, let's just go before God. Father, we love you. We thank you for this great salvation that you've given us. And that your spirit who dwells within us. So bless our time of fellowship together. And uh, speak through me, Uh, Lord, let your spirit work through all of us as uh, we go through your word this morning. And uh, might it be a great blessing to all of us uh, as we're edified by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Love, it's the greatest commandment. And when we think of salvation, uh, what God has done, it's not merely that he saved us from the penalty of our sins. It's not merely just that legal status that we have before God, that we are right with him, that we are reconciled with him, and that his wrath won't be poured out on us. It is indeed that, and that is a huge blessing, a great eternal blessing, uh, but there's more to it. We were made for love. We were made for God. We were made for fellowship with him. And in salvation, uh, God did it, obviously, because he loves us. When we didn't love him, when we were lost in our sins, He loved us before we even considered him uh, the true living God or even considered that we needed a savior. That is genuine love, love not like the world uh, that we see around us, but only the love that God can give. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to see how the characters involved uh, demonstrated that love to one another. We're going to see how uh, they showed uh, the love of Christ or the love of Christ poured through them into the lives of one another in the city there in Thessalonica and Berea and beyond. And then we're going to see why. Why do they love like this? Why do we as Christians love like this? Why bother? Because when you think about it, before we were saved, we loved just like the world did. And if you think about the love that the world has, it's fickle, right? It's shallow. It's based on feelings. And it's usually contingent upon you loving me first. If you love me, I'll love you. That's typically how it works, right? That's why we see uh, divorces so common, because they fall out of love with one another. That's why we see friendships break up, uh, because you're not just like me anymore, or you've changed, or, or those kinds of things. Again, it's very shallow and fickle, and there's no power, because it's based on how we view people. And we're relying on our own strength. And we rely on our own strength as unbelievers. Uh, all we can do is sin. All we can do is what displeases God. We don't have his power at work in us. And even as believers, we need to be careful, right? 
because we can live just like the world if we're not paying attention, if we're not uh, deriving power from God. And so we're going to take a look at that. Again, we're going to go through these, uh, these verses. We're going to take a look at the characters that are involved and what they did to demonstrate love. And as is inherent in the title, who do you love? We're going to see who they loved. We're going to see how the evidence uh, or how they demonstrated that. And then we're going to talk about why and how you can love uh, the way God calls you to. And then we'll finish up about personal application, uh, things that we can do as the body of Christ. So let's go ahead and start with uh, reading those first five verses. So if you open your Bibles with me again, chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind to Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So starting in verse 1, we see that word therefore. It's referring to a preceding event. And I know Nick had already talked about Acts 17 and all the things that happened in Thessalonica, but I'll highlight a few points of that. As you may recall, Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And he goes to the synagogues, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he's preaching the gospel to the people there and telling them that it was necessary for Christ to die for our sins. And it's necessary for them to believe in him, to have faith in him, uh, that they need a savior. And with that is salvation. And as he was doing that, many people were saved. Many people heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts that they heard those words of truth and they believed. They professed faith in Christ and started to live the way God called them to. Thank you very much. But the Jews in that synagogue were very jealous. You got to understand these were leaders in the church. They were like the Pharisees. Uh, they saw what was going on and they enjoyed their status. They enjoyed that everybody looked up to them in that religious community. So when Paul came to the synagogue and is preaching the gospel and talking about Jesus Christ, saying that he's the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies, they were upset. They saw these people getting saved. And mind you, it wasn't that uh, people were ignoring Paul or turning away or, or scoffing at them and telling them, you guys are crazy, get out of here. People were becoming believers. God was at work. And this made those Jews in Thessalonica jealous because it was taking away from their authority and their position uh, amongst the synagogue there. And so what did they do? They got very angry. They stirred up the crowd. Uh, they, they caused a false alarm saying, hey, if there's this King Jesus, Caesar's going to hear about it, and he's going to send the Roman guard here, and they're going to cause all sorts of problems with us. We're going to be punished for it. So we don't want these guys around. we got to get rid of them. And so they uh, went to Jason's house where a lot of the believers there uh, were meeting and uh, pulled them out before the crowds and accused them of this brought them before the authorities, and then the authorities made them post bail, as it were, and told them to be silent and not to talk about this Jesus anymore so we wouldn't incur the wrath of Rome. And it was temporarily, uh, at least in their minds, effective because these guys were brought before the crowds, the crowds despised them. Of course, Paul and Silas were ushered off in, uh, to Berea, a neighboring city to the east, or to the west, rather, uh, so that they could be safe uh, because these Jews here wanted to get a hold of Paul. They wanted to hurt him and maybe even kill him. And so uh, it caused great commotion and great disruption to Paul's ministry. And so they go to Berea, and Paul doesn't miss a beat. 
He goes to Berea. He's not hiding out. He's not scared. What does he do? He goes and preaches the gospel there to the synagogues. Except this time, the Jews in those, that synagogue there was, were more noble, as we see in the text in Acts 17. They listened to what Paul had to say, and as he was teaching them from the scriptures, they themselves went and examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. So rather than doing violence to them, rather than being selfish, uh, they wanted to see uh, what Paul was talking about. And so they examined the scriptures, like I said, on a daily basis. And I think there's an important point of application for us here. We, too, need to be students of the word. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before, that we need to be good Bereans. Uh, that means that you go out and study God's word. As you read books, as you watch uh, sermons on TV or podcasts, or me, check the scriptures and make sure that I'm not lying, right? Make sure that there's no error in what I'm teaching. Uh, don't just blindly accept what people say. God has given us his word so that we can know what he wants us to know. And he's given us of his spirit so that we can have wisdom to understand what it says. And so we should be regular students of the word and not be negligent in doing so. But back to the storyline here. So as these people were hearing Paul preach, they too believed. Many of them became saved. And you got to remember the, the Jews from the synagogue in Thessalonica, they heard about this. And do you think they were happy about that? Not at all. In fact, they came down to Berea, or came over to Berea, uh, to cause more commotion and put a stop to this kind of thing. And so they did. And as a result, uh, Paul was ushered off to Athens while Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. And you can imagine how Paul feels at this point. Uh, just a story about Paul's life. If you recall, before he became a Christian, he was just like these Jews from Thessalonica. As you may recall, he was out persecuting Christians people that were, uh, belonged to the way, as it was called back then. And so he went around uh, the areas uh, there and would bind up Christians. He had authority from the chief priest to do so. And he would persecute them. Some of them, were, he, would even, uh, he would even oversee their death and, uh, you know, taking of their belongings and those kinds of things. Because in their mind, uh, they were speaking blasphemy. But as you recall, on the road to Damascus, God put a stop to that, right? He blinded him. He made him realize that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at that point, Saul, as we now know him, Paul, was saved. And so he went on to Damascus. Uh, he didn't eat or drink, and he was praying there, and he had a vision from God that a man named Ananias would come and lay hands on him so that he could see. And at the same time, uh, God appeared to Ananias in a vision, saying, hey, I need you to go to Damascus, lay hands on Paul. He's expecting you so that he can see and he can carry on in his ministry. Of course, Ananias, he knows who Saul is, right? So he kind of pushes back a little bit and says, God, I know who this guy is. He's a violent man. He's done great evil to your people. So he was concerned that he was going to go see him in person and perhaps suffer persecution himself because he said the chief priests have given him authority. The, the, the Jewish authority gave him authority to go and bind Christians and take them back to Jerusalem. But God said, not anymore. He's mine, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so I think it's a beautiful story uh, because you see what God does in the heart of Paul. Paul before was a persecutor of Christians and did great harm to them, and he was actually going to Damascus for that very thing. He was going to go to the synagogue there and see if there was anybody there that was professing Christ as their Savior. And if there was, he was going to bind them and take them back to Jerusalem. But God changed his heart. God saved his soul. 
And instead of persecuting Christians at the synagogue in Jerusalem, he actually preached the gospel at the synagogue in Damascus. And as such, people were saved, uh, but as such, he also suffered persecution himself uh, because the Jews there were upset and were plotting to kill him. So he had to be ushered out of Damascus at that point. So Paul's heart, as God has changed it and transformed him, is to do missionary work. His calling, his gifting by the Spirit was to travel around and preach the gospel to people. And as they became saved, he would gather them together and minister to them, to teach and disciple them, and to help them to know all the things that God wanted them to know so that they could grow to maturity. So this was his excitement. That was mission accomplished for Paul. And then he would have elders appointed to continue to lead those believers and uh, bring in more believers and disciple them in knowing and loving God as their Savior. So you can imagine how he feels at this point because that has been cut short. The work uh, of the Jews from Thessalonica disrupted that whole process. And we can see that Paul has great love uh, for the believers at Thessalonica. He longed for them, as we see in the text. Uh, when he could bear it no longer, it's an it's a emotionally intense term, uh, he was struggling because he couldn't see them. He couldn't continue his ministry to them. He couldn't be with them in person. And he was concerned uh, what's their, you know, about their whereabouts, what they were doing, and uh, you know, what was the status of their faith. And perhaps you've longed for people like this. Perhaps you can identify with Paul. I'm sure we all can. There's various circumstances in our life where we love somebody, and for whatever reason, we can't see them face-to-face -face or we can't communicate with them uh, to varying degrees. Sometimes it's as simple as you're a grandparent and your grandkids live several states away and you long to see them. And while videos or Skype are nice, uh, it's not the same thing as seeing them face-to-face. -face. Or perhaps you have a family member that's gone off to serve in the military and they've been deployed uh, to battle. And you're concerned because you love them, you want to see them, you, you hope they get back home safely, but there's also that risk that they might not come home. I can think of, I used to work in education, and there were students uh, that I used to work with, and I knew life was difficult for them. And so that summer, that two and a half months or whatever it was, it was a long period to wait to find out how they were doing uh, when they came back to school in the fall. Uh, so there's all sorts of situations that we have, uh, or maybe it's a child that you have that isn't a believer. That's probably a pretty common one, and that's, that's something we have angst in our hearts because we long for their salvation, that they would know Christ as we do. And so there's all situations, all sorts of situations that we've experienced where we have a, a buildup of pressure in our hearts because we love someone and we long for a, a good end for them or a good result for them, uh, but we don't know and we're not there yet. And so that's where Paul is at. And uh, just like we would, Paul has a plan uh, to resolve that angst. He wants to reach out to them. And as we see in verse 2, uh, he wasn't able to do that himself. That obviously would be the ideal, uh, but he sends Timothy in his stead to go and get a report of how they're doing. What's the situation with their faith? Uh, so there was a couple of things he wanted to know. He wanted to encourage them in the face of persecution that they were experiencing. And Paul, as it relates here in the, the passage, uh, I'm sure he told to, uh, them his conversion story in Acts chapter 9 and how God promised him, you will suffer for my namesake. And again in Acts 14, uh, where Paul encouraged the believers there uh, in that story, that uh, through, through much trial and tribulation, we enter the kingdom of heaven. And he said that right after he was stoned for preaching the gospel. And so Paul wants to encourage the believers at Thessalonica that suffering and persecution uh, for our faith in Christ is part and parcel of the Christian life. It's expected. In fact, I'm sure all of us have experienced it to some degree. 
when you first became a believer, uh, you might have lost friends, right? You might have lost family members or people uh, despised you or rejected you. Uh, or uh, you might have been persecuted in the workplace for sharing the gospel. You might have even lost a job for sharing the gospel at work. There's all sorts of things that we've experienced as believers uh, that cause hardship. And I think it's encouraging for us to, to realize here that uh, hearing about other people's hardship and doing the same thing is a comfort to us, right? And so that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to communicate to the, the brothers and sisters in Christ at Thessalonica, remain steadfast. You know that persecution is going to happen. In fact, you know because you personally experienced it uh, that, early, that first visit when I was with you in Thessalonica. Uh, when they hauled Jason and other uh, believers out before the crowd. So they've already experienced it. He just wants to make sure that they, they know that that is part of the process. Because sometimes we can experience hardship because of our faith, and we think, wow, did I do something wrong? Uh, God, is God mad at me? Uh, not necessarily, um, if you're not sinning. Uh, but yeah, when you're faithful to God and you, you obey his word, and you're a light to the dark world around us, you will face persecution. So... He wanted to encourage them, and I think it's an encouragement for us uh, to see that we need to remain steadfast and can by the grace of God. The second thing that Paul wanted to know uh, is, are they continuing in the faith? And this wasn't an insult to them. He wasn't being presumptuous, saying, yeah, it's probably you, you, you canned your faith in Christ and are going back to the world. Uh, it's actually also to be expected. We know from Jesus teaching us that narrow is the way and few are those who find it. And wide is the path that leads to destruction. So as the gospel goes out around the world, uh, not everyone's going to believe. In fact, we know as Jesus taught the parable of the sower, uh, that uh, the, the seed is cast on different types of ground, four in fact, and only one of them resulted in salvation. The other three, uh, people heard the gospel, uh, they, they might have liked how it sounded, okay, salvation, um, I'm not going to go to hell when I die, okay, good. Um, but then as soon as they uh, are tempted, or as soon as they face trials or persecution, they want nothing to do with it. Or maybe they evaluate what God calls them to do as a Christian, uh, compared to the joys and the pleasures of the flesh, they would rather love the world than love God. And so we're told that many people will hear the gospel and might even seem like real believers, uh, but ultimately they'll fall away because they, they don't want Christ. God has not done a work in their heart. In fact, John in his, uh, his epistle, 1 John, said that they, unbelievers, went out from us, but they were never of us. If they have, or if they were, they would have continued with us. And so we know uh, that many people are going to hear the gospel and not believe. But we also know that as God has done a work in our heart, as Paul says in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, that it was the work of the Spirit that caused you to believe and to work in this labor of love and to do these, these things of ministry that God has called us to do. Uh, so Paul is concerned, and it's, it's a frequent concern of his. We can see in his letter to the, the church at Corinth, uh, he used that same uh, vein. Did I labor? Was my labor in vain? And for the church in Corinth, it was because uh, they professed faith in Christ, but they were living just like the world. And in fact, in one instance, they were doing things that uh, the world even frowned upon. Um, but so Paul was concerned that these people were practicing sin and not doing what God called them to do. And at one point, he even told them to examine themselves to see if they were in the faith. And so Paul's expressed his concern before. Also in the church in Galatia, we see them. They received the gospel. They were moving along just fine. But a false teacher came among them and told them that, yeah, you need to believe in Christ, but you also need to be circumcised. Otherwise, you don't have salvation. 
And so Paul was concerned, when you do that, when you add works to salvation, you are denying Christ. And so he cautioned them, don't do that. That is a false gospel. And I would encourage you today that if you hear people uh, that tell you that, yeah, you need to believe in Christ, but you also need to do this, uh, jump through this hoop or do this particular work uh, just right, otherwise it does, it's not effective. False gospel. Don't listen to it. Correct them. Plead with them to believe in the true gospel. Uh, but don't believe what they say and don't be distracted or disturbed by it because it's false. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works. So those were Paul's concerns. That's what he wanted Timothy. That's what he sent Timothy to do to find these things out, uh, to see if uh, they were surviving the persecution and remaining steadfast, and then also that their faith was intact, that they were continuing to walk with God and believe. So while this angst is building within him, and you've got to understand, uh, they didn't have social media back then. He couldn't text the people in Thessalonica to find out what was going on. That would have been an easy fix. In those days, in that day and age, uh, you had to walk and go to, see, go to see them in person. Or you had to send a letter, and the time that it took for that letter to get there and then come back uh, could be days, weeks, months, who knows. But it wasn't, uh, you didn't get a quick resolution to his, or Paul couldn't get quick resolution to his concerns. So again, his ideal was to see them in person, but circumstances were such that he couldn't do that, so he sent Timothy in his stead. So let's see, as this angst was building up in Paul's heart, as he longed to see the Thessalonians to make sure that things were okay, let's see from this passage here what the answer was. Were his prayers answered? Uh, was he comforted in his distress? Let's take a look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So we see here, Paul's prayers were answered. Now bear in mind, God does comfort us in our distresses. It's a promise that he gives. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to answer our prayers and resolve our concerns the way we want them to be. That is just a, a sad part of living in a fallen world. And God uses those, those circumstances uh, according to his sovereign plan for our benefit, believe it or not. Uh, so in this case, though, we see that God did indeed answer his prayer and that the believers there at Thessalonica were genuine believers. They were continuing on the faith. And as you recall, the, the persecution that they received in Thessalonica where some of them had to post bond and promise to keep quiet? Did they do that? No. No, we're called to obey God no matter what the governing authorities tell us. Or, well, let me, let me qualify that. If the governing authorities tell us to sin against God, we don't do that. We obey God. And so that's what's going on here uh, in Thessalonica. They went out and preached the gospel. They were faithful and bold to do so, as we can see earlier on in this letter. And so God was doing a mighty work in them, uh, which was great encouragement to Paul. So we can see uh, that they were acting out faith. They were, they were continuing their faith in Christ. They were loving one another. And you can see in the terms here that uh, the Thessalonians, they remembered Paul kindly. They didn't have any misgivings towards him. Uh, they longed to see him just as Paul longed to see them face to face. And that was his prayer and hope that uh, God would indeed bring them back together soon. 
So Paul is greatly comfort, comforted. The Thessalonians are greatly comforted. And all this because God is at work in their lives and sovereignly orchestrating circumstances, even the bad ones. As we see at the end of chapter 2, Satan hindered them, uh, hindered his mission from sharing the gospel and continuing his ministry uh, in Thessalonica. But God is going to resolve all that and uh, help things to continue as they should. And we can even see in our own lives, uh, if, you, if you've ever experienced persecution uh, for your faith in Christ, what does it do? It emboldens you, doesn't it? I love God, and I am not going to deny him. I am not going to be silent about my love for Christ because you don't like it. Uh, and so it, it makes us bold to share the gospel and uh, to persevere through persecution. Now I want to review the parties that are involved. If we, as we've looked at this text and seen who's involved, we've got Paul, we've got Timothy, we've got the Thessalonians. We also have the Jews from Thessalonica. I'll start with them. We're going to take a look at who they loved. Who did they love? How did they love? Uh, what kind of things did they, they prove uh, that they loved uh, the people that they were interacting with or God? And so, like I said, we're going to start with the Jews from Thessalonica. Again, their authority and influence was undermined by the gospel. Uh, they like to sit in high places. They like to be um, honored by the people there. And uh, when they saw people getting saved, that took away from that. They were no longer uh, important. They were no longer exalted before the people. Now, among those believers in Thessalonica, Christ was exalted. And again, they didn't like this at all. And so what did they do? They were violent. They stirred up the crowds. They dragged Jason and other believers out of his house and dragged them before an angry mob. So they were violent towards them. They were also liars and manipulators. Again, their real motive uh, was because their authority was being threatened. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to lose their status. But they lied and appealed to the authorities of Thessalonica by saying that, hey, Caesar is going to pour out his wrath on us if he hears that there's a king, uh, namely Jesus, that's rising up out of Thessalonica. And so that was just a ruse for them uh, to get the crowds upset and get the authorities upset. But the real motive, as we know from the context, uh, was because they didn't want their authority to be usurped. They also didn't love Christ. Mind you, these are Jews uh, that know the Old Testament uh, they know the prophecies about Christ, and it's possible they might have even seen, hey, he, he fits the bill, uh, but they love themselves so much. They love their status so much. They love their own way of righteousness so much. They didn't want anything to do with Christ. And as Jesus told us, if people hate me, they're going to hate you also. So what did they do? Uh, they caused a great uproar in the city of Thessalonica. And, uh, of course, as we know, that Paul was ushered off to Berea as well as Silas. And so we see these people, they love themselves they loved their status, and they were willing to do all sorts of evil things uh, to get it back or to maintain it. So that's, uh, that's what they loved, and those were the, the actions that they took uh, based on what they loved, namely themselves. Now, I think it's a, a good point of application here that before we were saved, we were just like them. Were we not? It's a common thing. If you go around and share the gospel with people, one of the, the, most, uh, the normal responses from people is that, well, I'm good enough, you know? I'm a good person. Uh, I hold on a job. Um, I'm good to people, uh, especially those that are good to me. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, answers that really depict a self-righteousness and a reliance on our own righteousness uh, that should make us right before God. And that's just the natural state of things. No matter what uh, segment of society you're in or where you're at in your life, uh, everybody thinks they're better than somebody, right? 
It's just our sinful nature. You can even see that in prison culture. There's a hierarchy of, of crimes committed, and uh, there's the ones that are, are highly prized and regarded, and then there's the ones that nobody likes, and they tend to suffer the most in the prison uh, culture. So uh, all around the world, no matter where you're at in life, we always think we're better than somebody else. But that's not the standard, is it? No, the standard is holiness. You might be a good citizen. You might be civil. Uh, you might generally obey the laws of the land. Uh, but that doesn't make you right before God. That's not the same as holiness. We just can't get there. We just can't please God by our works. It's absolutely impossible. And so that's why we need a savior, one who is holy and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins because that is the penalty. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how successful you are. You might be highly regarded in your community uh, with your employer, with your family, but you're not right with God until you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. And that was our state for all of us before we became believers, right? And I would encourage you this morning, if you're here and you're not saved, may the Holy Spirit work in your heart to recognize that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that this book, the Bible, is the truth, and that indeed he did need to die on the cross for your sins. And if you're here this morning and you say, yes, yes, that is me. I need a savior. I need Jesus Christ. Come and talk to one of us after the service. I remember that when I was saved uh, back in my college days. And I remember they were, uh, a couple of people were sharing the gospel with me. And uh, they were talking about going to church and doing all these things. And at that point, God was already working in my heart uh, that I was just getting sick and tired of sin. There was no satisfaction in it, no joy. And, uh, and I had already known the gospel. I had grown up and go to gone to church for most of my young life. Uh, so it wasn't that I was ignorant of the gospel. I knew it. But at that point, I just sensed this, this voice inside that said, follow me. And I, I, I was so excited because right at that point, as I had that thought in my head, they said, so Sean, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. <laughs> Little did they know, uh, if they knew my lifestyle in college, that uh, they just said, oh, we need to talk. Um, because it wasn't anything that would emulate the love of Christ. It wasn't anything that would emulate um, living in obedience to God's word or anything like that. So, uh, but that was a work that God did in my heart right there. And they didn't even know it. And just their influence of sharing uh, how they loved God and how they loved going to church, uh, God used that uh, to transform my heart right there and to encourage me uh, to walk with him. So that's my encouragement to you this morning if you're not a believer. So those are the, uh, the Jews at Thessalonica. Obviously a bad example of loving themselves and uh, loving the things of this world. But now let's move on to Paul. Again, he was much like the Jews in Thessalonica. He was a leader in the Jewish community. And uh, he thought he was doing the right thing, according to the Judaic system. If somebody professed uh, faith in Christ and they were in the synagogue and called themselves a Jew, that was blasphemy. And so he thought he was doing the right thing by going out and about and uh, grabbing up people that profess faith in Christ and bringing before the, the chief priests. But as we know, on that road to Damascus, God changed his heart. And so he was a different man. Rather than hating God in the gospel and hating believers and persecuting them, now he loved God, he loved the gospel, and he loved God's people and loved the loss. And we can see this in this letter uh, that he wrote to the Thessalonians, just some of the, the writing that he did. Uh, like a nursing mother... He was gentle among them. Such terms of endearment. 
like a father teaching his children. That's how he was among the Thessalonians. Uh, he affectionately desired to see them. And then at the end of chapter 2, and he said, I was separated from you only in person, not in heart. Such endearing words that reflected his heart of love for the Thessalonians. And of course, they reciprocated that love. They longed to see him as well, and uh, were hoping for a good report of how he was doing. It's also important to point out that he wasn't aloof and distant from them. He didn't go about and suffer persecution and ushered off to Berea and then to Athens and think, well, I've got my own problems. Uh, you guys are going to have to figure it out. He wasn't arrogant, thinking, okay, I did my job. I preached the gospel. A number of people got saved. Pat on the back. Move on. Uh, next town. Next church. No, he was passionately connected with the people at Thessalonica. He loved them greatly. And so it's clear from the evidence uh, that Paul loved God, he loved God's people, and he loved the lost. Now let's take a look at Timothy. A little bit about Timothy's history. He was saved in AD 44 uh, when Paul and Barnabas came to Lyconia where he lived uh, during his first missionary journey. And uh, we can see that uh, Timothy hit the ground running. Uh, we'll take a look at this passage here out of 1 Timothy 4.14. But for seven years... He walked with God. He, he chased after him. Uh, he grew. The Spirit worked in his heart uh, to become a mature believer such that it was evident uh, that he was called to do ministry. So let's take a look at this passage in 1 Timothy 4.14. And Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we can see that Timothy did what he did uh, because the Spirit was at, at work within him. And the elders and the other believers in that church there uh, saw his faith. They saw the gifting that God had given him. And Paul encourages him, you know, stir up that gift. Don't neglect uh, to grow in your knowledge of God and your love for him. And so we see after those seven years, Paul then joined, uh, or Timothy then joined Paul on his second missionary journey, which kind of catches up, uh, us up to speed based on what we read or discussed about Acts 17. So this was Timothy's first solo missionary trip to Thessalonica. So after he, he traveled along with Paul for a few cities, and as we know, Paul was in Athens uh, he couldn't bear it any longer. He couldn't wait any longer to hear how the uh, Thessalonians were doing. So he sent Timothy on his first missionary journey to Thessalonica. Interesting little fact. I think Timothy's love is clearly evident when we look at his history and uh, the things that he did. Uh, clearly, as, after becoming saved, he loved God. And I think this is evident that he uh, studied the scriptures. And he was willing to respond to the gift uh, that God had given him to be a teacher to read the scriptures, uh, to minister to the people in the church there. Uh, so he loved God and was doing what God called him to do. We also see that he loved Paul. He served alongside him, and all the same sufferings that Paul experienced, Timothy saw the same thing and experienced the same thing. And that didn't scare him away. That didn't make him uh, run back home or deny the faith. Uh, but he stayed along with Paul, and he was concerned about Paul and ministered to Paul. And so we see his love for Paul. We also see his love for the Thessalonians. It was no small thing for him to travel back to Thessalonica after all that persecution. Surely he was at risk. 
Surely he could have suffered persecution by showing up there and continuing to minister to the church at Thessalonica. So it's clear that he loved the Thessalonians. He, he denied himself for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's people. So I think it's clear, just like Paul, Timothy loved God, he loved God's people, and he loved the lost. And then let's look, take a look at the Thessalonians. As we see in the text there, they remembered Paul kindly. They were thinking of him. It wasn't like they forgot about him. Uh, they weren't offended by the fact that he wasn't there or that he blew them off or anything like that. Uh, they missed him. They longed to see him as well because they loved him. Uh, as we see in chapter 1, they turned from idols to worship the true living God. They were repentant. And as God calls us to live repentantly, they were doing the very same thing. Uh, they were bold to preach the gospel. So while God saved them, now they were, they were filled with joy from the Holy Spirit, and they wanted other people to be saved. And so they preached the gospel not, in only, not only in that region where they lived, in Thessalonica and Macedonia, but they also preached the gospel all the way down to Achaia, which is a couple hundred miles away. And when you think of the way uh, time moved, or people moved and traveled back then, that's a big deal. Their reputation went before them because of their faith in Christ and because of their labor of love and the things that they were doing. So it's clear that the, Thessalonian, uh, the Thessalonians also love God. They love God's people, and they love the lost. Now why? Why do they love like this? Why do we love like this? Again, the Christian life is different. It's not like the love of this world or the, the false religions that we have around this world where uh, you make your way or you get this, this hopeful sense of confidence that you're going to go to heaven or paradise or whatever the religion has uh, if you're good enough, if you follow a regimented um, list of duties and, and responsibilities with the hopes, like I said, that maybe someday you'll, you'll appease the gods or a god or whatever the case may be. Uh, in, in the Christian life, it's different. We're not even able to love like God calls us to love until he does something. And that's what I want to look at here in this text. We'll take a look at 1 John 4, 10 through 13. This is what happens to us when we're saved. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So that's one of the great blessings, one of the major contrasts between Christianity and all the false religions out there. God dwells within us. His spirit dwells within us. We need to realize what a great blessing that is. If you recall when Jesus was talking to the disciples before he was crucified, uh, he said, it's good that I go because I'm going to send you the comforter and he'll be with you always. So the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He's always present with us. And what a great blessing that is, because with that, he comforts us. Uh, we, he gives us wisdom. Uh, he, he gives us the grace, the power uh, to do what God calls us to do. And so it's a huge blessing that the Spirit of Christ uh, dwells within us. We can love the way God wants us to. I, I think it's important to point out that we don't have to invite God to come to us or wait for him, right? Bear in mind, it's not just a feeling. You might have your emotions stirred up. I certainly do, and I can really sense the presence of God. But it's not always like that. But that doesn't mean the Spirit isn't with us. And so that's a great blessing that we don't have to wait for God to show up. He's already here. The question is, are we going to draw near to him? Are we going to walk with him or are we going to walk in the flesh? 
Are we going to rely on God? Are we going to rely on ourselves? Are we going to have fellowship with God? Are we going to have fellowship with the world and our sinful nature? So I think as we take a look at this, um, that we have a choice. As we see in Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. We can either walk by the Spirit or we can walk by the flesh. Even as believers, and I would say even with my own self, uh, by default, I'm walking in the flesh. I think the Christian life is an intentional one. Because in any relationship, if we love somebody, we have to reach out to them. We have to engage them. We have to communicate with them. And that's the same way it is with God. He's called us uh, to communicate with him. Indeed, he's given us the way to do it, and that's through prayer. And we even see in Romans where the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. So God has already done a great work in us, but he calls us to engage him. And that's a joyful fellowship. It's not boring. It's not a detraction from the better things in life. No, there's joy, a simple, pure joy, when we can have fellowship with God through prayer. And so uh, we are called to walk by the Spirit. Now, in this Christian life, is it not a struggle? Yes? Or am I the only one? Uh, we are tempted, are we not? We are deceived in our own ignorance that sin might just be better than obeying God. It's, uh, it's part of the frustrating truth that we are not yet as we are going to be when we see God face to face. So be honest with yourselves. It's a struggle. We are all tempted. But there's great blessing in it. It's not that we just need to try harder. It's not that we need to take special rigid steps and uh, like asceticism, you know, just uh, punishing yourself or walking around feeling guilty. No, because of the Holy Spirit, because we can walk with the Spirit, there's freedom, there's power to do what God calls us to do. And as you see the fruits of the Spirit, it's love and joy and patience, uh, perseverance, or uh, not perseverance, uh, gentleness, self-control, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This is what happens when we walk by the Spirit. He works these things out in our hearts. In contrast, when we walk by the flesh, I think we know what that looks like. There's all sorts of divisions among us. Uh, there's critical spirits. Uh, there's uh, drunkenness, all sorts of idolatry uh, that goes on, and it just causes uh, dissension among us. In our workplace, in our families. But we're called by God, and again, not just to try to, to, to measure up to a standard, but we're called by God to walk with him so that he can empower us to do the things he wants us to do. So then the question is, well, how do we walk by the Spirit? How do we do this thing that God calls us to do? Again, God is a relational God. And as I mentioned, he calls us to draw near to him. So let's take a look at Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, bear in mind, the faith part is accomplished. If you're a believer, he's given you faith. It's a gift. So don't neglect uh, to draw near to God. He's given us ways to do that, to, to relate to him just the way we relate to one another. We communicate. We talk to one another. God calls us to talk to him. One of the key things that God calls us to do uh, as Christians is to love him. 
And as we're, we're told, if we love God, we'll obey his commands. So one of the first things we can do is obey. And with that, there's a promise. So as God calls us to walk by his spirit, uh, we can do that by obedience. And interestingly enough, we can only do obedience when we walk by the spirit. And so uh, it's all part of that engaging God and saying, I love you. I want to do what pleases you. Give me the grace to do so. So here's a promise that we have in Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's the promise. He doesn't leave us to rely on our own strength to measure up to his standard. He calls us to walk with him, and in so doing, he gives us the power to overcome temptation. As you see in that last verse there, uh, that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is good. He's covered everything. And so he's given us salvation, and he's also given us uh, the, the power to do what he calls us to do. And secondly, what goes with that is studying the word. If we want to know what pleases God, we need to study the word. Because in his word are his commandments, the things he calls us to do. And we know that they're not burdensome. His commandments are good, and there's great joy uh, through the Spirit when we obey him. And uh, again, it's just a simple thing. Don't turn it into a mantra. But when you're struggling with temptation, don't just try not to sin. Because that's, that's a fleshly-minded kind of a thing. Rather, go to God in prayer. Father, I love you. I'm tempted to do this. I don't want to because I love you. Give me grace to do so. Ten out of ten times, God has given me the grace to say no and to obey him. And he'll do the same for you uh, because he's given us his Holy Spirit that gives us the power to do so. And lastly, as as was already mentioned, these all work uh, uh, in conjunction with one another. But prayer. Pray without ceasing. As you go about your day, talk with God. Cast your cares upon him because he loves you. When you're faced with temptation, ask for power to overcome. Pray for those around you. Pray for unbelievers, that they, would too, that they too would know Christ as you do. And so we're called to pray. This is, these are the things that God uh, calls us to do so that we can walk by the Spirit, to engage him in a relationship, to have fellowship with God. And again, I would say that obedience to God is fellowship with him. We're not doing that by our own strength or trying to uh, do more good than, than not, uh, but it's a relationship that we have with God. Again, uh, ask him for grace to obey him. So now, we, we briefly cover this idea of how to walk by the Spirit. In walking by the Spirit, how can we love one another? Just as in any, any relationship, we communicate with one another. Talk to each other with the intention of being a blessing to them and pray for that. Uh, engage each other in fellowship. As you get to know each other and become more vulnerable with one another, you talk about your struggles in life. You talk about the joys. You talk about how God is working in your life. Continue to do that because that's how we're strengthened when we hear how God is working in other people's lives. Encourage each other. Pray for one another. Tell, your, tell people you're praying for them. Uh, build each other up. Don't tear each other down. We can easily turn God's word and his commandments into a, a self-righteous standard by which we condemn other people. Don't do that. If you see a brother or sister sinning, come, come alongside them privately and humbly and help them to walk in obedience with God and encourage them uh, with these very things. 
We're also called to act in love. So pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. Sometimes we're busy in life and all we have time for is small talk in some cases, but we should be intentional about getting to know one another or reaching out to members in our community or our coworkers and that kind of thing. Uh, but, but go out and do things. Find out what people's needs are. And whatever that is, in love, meet those needs. And then serve in love. Participate in the ministry of the church. And that's not necessarily just here in the physical location of the church, but that's also out there. As I said, be praying for one another. Get to know one another. Encourage one another. Uh, get involved in community groups. That's a great way uh, to, to engage one another and share in fellowship. Uh, so serve uh, in the various ministries here in the church, as many of you already are. So we have plenty of opportunity and calling uh, from God to get involved in the church, to communicate love to one another, to act in love to one another, and to serve in love to one another. And we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about Paul, Timothy, the Thessalonians. What about us? What about Whitefields? Is God's love at work in our hearts? Is he using us? Are you loving the way God calls you to do? Well, absolutely. Look at some of the things that we do. Uh, the people that set up and take down every Sunday morning. That's a labor of love. Uh, those of you that teach our children in Sunday school or care for our little ones in the nursery, that too is a labor of love. Uh, you show hospitality on Sunday morning, those of you that set up with the, the donuts and the coffee and greet people as they come in. You show hospitality to one another outside of the church. You host community groups. You invite people over and get together with them. Uh, you, you, you pray for each other. When people prayer requests on Realm, uh, how many of us take time to pray for those people, for their concerns, for their needs? Many of you make meals for families in need. And there's all sorts of things that uh, we're already doing uh, that God calls us to do. And so may God give you grace to continue to do that, but do so all the more. And so I want to read the last couple of verses here in 1 Thessalonians. And this is a prayer that Paul uh, closes with in this chapter that says that very thing. He's praying that God would continue uh, to make you love all the more. So let's read that together. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So God's power is already at work in you and it's by his power that you'll continue to grow in love for him, in love for one another, in love for the lost in our community and uh, may he continue to give you grace to do so. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. And it's not merely truth that we can acknowledge from afar. But it's the truth of your Holy Spirit that works within us that makes these words come to life in our lives. And so, Lord, give us wisdom to understand uh, the simple concept of walking by your spirit. But we come away from here with a, a growing desire to walk with you, to have fellowship with you as we pray to you, as we submit to your, your word and obey your commands, as we study your word to know you more, Lord God. Let it be an intentional act of love towards you as we do all these things. And as we do that, might your spirit work mightily in us and cause us to do these very things that Paul and Timothy and the Thessalonians were doing. For indeed, they're not super Christians. They're just like us. 
And we can do what you've called us to do, Lord, and that by your spirit. So bless us, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.